I'm Kay Firth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Miriam, how lovely to see you. Uh, I'm so looking forward to our interview today, but what have you been doing with your week so far? Okay, it's great to see you. I am so looking forward to our conversation today, as I always do. Uh, today, we're talking with Ziad Obermeyer, who will uh, present a lot of the studies that we reference. And, and as the author, it'll be great to talk with him about what he saw, why he did these studies, and, and what we can learn from him. Uh, but thank you for the question. It's been a great week so far. Uh, we are about to co-launch again our next badge cohort for Responsible AI Governance with senior executives. And I am so excited to relaunch this program. Uh, the feedback that I'm sure you saw too was really beyond anything I could have hoped for in terms of the value that, that our uh, senior executives got out of it. I'm so thrilled for the community that we've been building, that they can have one another, that we can work with them, and that tomorrow will grow who gets to participate in that community and the insights that you and so many of our speakers share. Absolutely. And isn't it wonderful that some of the people who have been on the previous course are now sending some of their colleagues to this new course? I think that that's a huge testament to how valuable they found it. It's yeah, a huge compliment and a nice opportunity to really scale our impact within an organization by having so many throughout an organization familiar with our same best practices that we are all talking about and focusing on. Uh, so yes, that will be good fun. And, and, and how are you and, and what are you looking forward to in our conversation today with Ziad? Oh, I think lots of things, because as you say, you know, we reference a lot of the work. So it's going to be so good to talk to to the person who who actually did the work. But um, I'm very interested in how people think about privacy and healthcare now, uh, because lots of people just wantonly give their privacy about their own health away when we shared data about um, our eating habits, for example, or exercising. Uh, so I'm very interested in that, but obviously in the focus on bias and and uh, the problems with racial diversity that he's encountered. I couldn't agree more. It's, you know, anyone who's had to endure a talk of mine will have heard about his work. Uh, you know, so many people know about the pivotal work he did that really exposed for the world where racial injustice can be spread forward by AI when it is not built properly. It, and he looked at it in such interesting ways. The questions that were asked were leading to bad outcomes in addition to the data that was rife with uh, class-based bias, race-based bias. And so you get the worst case outcome where in healthcare, healthcare offering solutions are being given, offered, 
by medical practitioners who have no idea that the algorithms they're relying on are spreading the, this discrimination. Um, but what is so interesting about his work as well is that he provides us the, with the bookends. He shows us what happens when AI goes awry, when we don't produce it in a responsible way. But he also gives us the gifts of showing some of the ways that it can be used for good. Um, and, and some of his seminal studies where he has built algorithms that have been intentional, responsible, mindful of actually overcoming human bias and creating better outcomes than uh, we were able to without them. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Let's jump in. It is a true pleasure to introduce our guest this week, Ziad Obermeyer. Ziad is at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health, Health as the Blue Cross of California Distinguished Associate Professor of Health Policy and Management, where he conducts research at the intersection of machine learning, medicine, and health policy. Before joining the faculty at Berkeley, Ziad was an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, where he received numerous awards, including the NIH's most prestigious award for exceptional junior scientists. He continues to practice emergency medicine in underserved parts of the U.S., and prior to his career in medicine, worked as a consultant to pharmaceutical and global health clients at McKinsey. He is the co-founder of Nightingale Open Science, a computing platform giving researchers access to new health imaging data sets, as well as Dandelion, which we'll look forward to hearing more about in our discussion. Ziad, thank you so much. We are so pleased to have you on our show today. It is wonderful to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me. So to start, we want to ask you about one of the many seminal studies that you led, um, and one that I think it's not an overstatement to say changed the conversation of trustworthy AI. There are very few case studies in the wild that demonstrate the fears we have, the concerns, the hypo we know plays out where bias results in discrimination, and you published one of those seminal studies that resulted in headlines in most every leading outlet, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post. In this study, it was published in Science in October 2019, entitled Dissecting Racial Bias in an Algorithm Used to Manage Health Populations. We wanted to dig in and, and share with our audience what inspired this study, what were your findings, and what, where do you, what lessons can we learn from the particulars of this study? So I think the, the starting point for us was the observation that even though a lot of artificial intelligence in medicine seems very far away and futuristic, even today in our healthcare system, algorithms are already deployed at very, very large scale. Um, and they're not necessarily deployed in the clinic helping your doctor make decisions, but today they are helping what I think of as policymakers within the healthcare system make decisions. So um, people who are, for example, responsible for the health of a whole population of patients. So you can imagine someone who is um, running a big primary care service at a, at a health system or um, uh, an insurer that's, re that's responsible for a, a large population of patients that they insure. All those people need to make decisions about those populations, um, and they need to do that at large scale. And so algorithms are already being used. So to, to give you a sense of the scale, the, the one algorithm that we studied in that paper, that algorithm um, made by one company is being used to make medical decisions for 70 million people every year in the U.S. 
Um, and the family of algorithms that works like it um, is anywhere between 150 to 200 million people in the U.S. So basically most of the U.S. population. So I think that's a, a good starting point is that these algorithms are already uh, being used at very large scale in the healthcare system. And it's really important to understand whether or not they're doing what we want them to be doing. So um, we were interested in a set of algorithms that basically is used by health systems and insurers to as a gatekeeper for access to extra help. So, you know, there are um, patients with complex medical needs, lots of chronic illnesses. They tend to fall through the cracks between all of their doctors and ERs that they visit and hospitalizations. And so a lot of health systems and insurers have invested in what's called high-risk care management programs. But the way I think about those things is it's basically like a VIP program for very complex patients. So there's a single phone number they can call. They get a human that helps them refill their medications or get a primary care doctor appointment, really whatever they need to keep them healthy and to keep them out of the ER and the hospital um, when their heart failure flares up or when they have you know, um, pneumonia or something like that. So if we can get on top of those problems early, we can help them stay healthy, we can save the healthcare system a lot of money, everybody wins. But you know, of course, we can't do that for everybody. So we need to prioritize those extra help resources to people who really need them and are gonna benefit from them. And that's where algorithms come in. So that's that family of algorithms that I mentioned that's being used for 150 to 200 million people. Those are the kinds of decisions that they're helping with. Um, and we were interested in those algorithms because it seemed like most of those algorithms were, um, you know, they, they had the potential to introduce um, uh, either great um, efficiency in terms of matching people to, to the resources they need for their healthcare, or they could do great harm depending on how they were working. So thank you for that, and thank you for that amazing piece of work. Um, as a physician, an academic, and a management consultant, you really had three careers available to you. So how did you end up focusing on AI ethics? What was your plan to turn this into a career, and how has it changed or evolved as you went along? Well, thanks for asking. I, I um I think that the work that I'm doing now actually does bring together a lot of those strands of work that I've done. So um, when I trained as a doctor, I was very attuned to how hard it was to make decisions in the clinic um, because patients are really complicated. Um, medicine is really complicated. That decision is just, you know, that the set of decisions you have to make is it's both very high stakes and very high complexity. And so I, you know, um, was always very, attuned to my own limitations um, in, in terms of how to make those decisions. Um, and so that's where a lot of my research comes from. It's from that um, stress and worry that I felt when I was working in the ER and trying to make these decisions that were you know, really um, life and death decisions for the patients that I was taking care of. So I think I came to artificial intelligence and the research that I do from a place of great optimism about what these algorithms can do to help doctors and other people in health make decisions. Um, and so that's what brings those two things together. Um, as I've developed some of this work, and, and in particular, since a lot of the work has found um, a lot of racial bias and algorithms, um, the, the, the part of my history in management consulting has actually come in really handy because a lot of what's needed to fix those problems is organizational. Um, I think that algorithms are, you know, if you look in health or, or in any industry, algorithms are affecting millions or hundreds of millions of patients, customers that, that organizations depend on 
for their work. And yet, despite the huge importance of those algorithms um, for, for the health system and for companies, the amount of strategic oversight that those algorithms get is extremely low. And I think it's a huge mismatch relative to you know, their, their strategic importance. Um, and so a lot of what I've been trying to do since um, the, the research um, that I've been doing you know, had all of these concrete implications is to figure out how to help organizations manage that um, oversight uh, and audit of algorithms to make sure algorithms are doing what they're supposed to do and to avoid problems like introducing racial bias. Well, we are so grateful for that. And, you know, both Kate and I often talk about the fact that while our work focuses on discrimination stemming from bias in AI, we're both optimistic and it's encouraging to hear that you are as well. Um, and it comes across in your work. It's interesting because I think one study we often hear about is this one that demonstrates the harms of, of classism and racism in algorithms when they are not built properly when we don't ask the right questions. Uh, but I love that another really important study you published last year, an algorithmic approach to reducing unexplained pain disparities in underserved populations, is this really important work where you show how AI, if made intentionally and thoughtfully, can actually do better than humans. It's what we aspire to, it's what we hope for AI, and you've found a way to actually realize that in a uh, truly challenging systemic problem where uh, too often patients, and particularly patients of color, are underdiagnosed in terms of their pain from osteoarthritis. Uh, and that's, as we know, based on human bias in the healthcare system. Uh, and you created a, an AI program with deep learning that was more effective at predicting and capturing pain, better at treating patients, all patients, and particularly patients of color, building trust in our healthcare system and in AI when used properly. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you went about this research and what we can learn from that important study? Um, thanks. Yeah. So th this is work that was led by my colleague, Emma Pearson, who is a professor at Cornell. Um, and what, um, what we did in that study was to start with the observation that in a lot of machine learning, and in particular, the, the kinds of machine learning that's applied to medical imaging, that work follows a, a pretty standard playbook, which is to say, okay, get a bunch of x-rays and then train an algorithm to understand what a radiologist would say about that x-ray. So that's the kind of like thing that the algorithm is learning. It's, it's learning how to diagnose pneumonia or arthritis or something else on the x-ray like a human doctor. And I think that playbook, you know, building on advances in machine vision and computing power and, and data sets that are, uh, that are available has been very successful in building algorithms that can match the performance of a human doctor. And that sounds great. And I think that's very useful in a number of settings. But the problem with matching the performance of a human doctor is that you also match their biases and errors. Um, and so one of the things that, um, that we were interested in in that study and, and in all the work that I do is really trying to figure out how algorithms can not just spit back out the, the same problematic things that humans do, but actually find ways to do better. So that was the underlying motivation for that study. And what we did is we trained an algorithm to look at an x-ray but not ask the doctor what she thought about the x-ray, um, but to ask another human um, who's also pretty important um, for their opinion about the x-ray, which is the patient. So we were looking at x-rays of the knee, um, of, of patients with, with knee pain and osteoarthritis, and we trained an algorithm to not learn from the doctor, but to listen to the patient 
and to try to understand, okay, this is a picture of a knee. Does the patient, is the patient going to say that this knee is painful or not? So just by making that small change, by, by changing who the algorithm was learning from, to the patient, not the doctor, we created an algorithm that had two properties. One is that it explained a lot more pain than the radiologists were able to. So it was, it was able to see a lot more things in the knee that were causing patients pain over and above what the radiologist was seeing in the knee. The second property is really important for, um, for, for equity, which is that those additional things that the algorithm was seeing, those things disproportionately affected black patients. So it was especially good at explaining the pain that black patients felt in their knee um, that was unexplained by the radiologist. So, so the radiologists were looking at these x-rays and they were disproportionately missing things in the knee that were causing pain in black patients. And it's not so surprising when you think back to um, where that radiologist knowledge comes from. Um, everything we know about arthritis, the grading systems we use, the, the, the very concept of what arthritis is, came from studies of um, coal miners in England in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and that doesn't reflect the medical problems of the populations that we see in healthcare today. And so it's no surprise that the human knowledge base that's applied to interpreting those x-rays is biased because that's just how medicine worked um, and that's how medical knowledge has been built up. So I think there's a real opportunity to use algorithms to rebuild that medical knowledge in a more just way that represents um, the, um, the, the, the populations that we see today. And that, you know, um, that's really important for getting patients the, the care that they need because you can imagine that if a radiologist looks at the knee of a patient who is in pain, and doesn't find anything wrong, that patient isn't going to get referred to a knee specialist. They're going to get some other care. And you know, um, when we look at the huge disparities in access to knee replacement surgeries and specialty care in general for black patients, this could be a huge part of the problem. That's great. And it's really good to see AI doing such important work. And so um, I also noticed a recent tweet that uh, you've been looking at 250,000 ER visits to see whether algorithms could predict which patients had heart attacks versus other kinds of chest pain. Um, I think that you know many people want to know that that can be done because when they have the chest pain, they don't know uh, what's going to happen to them. So how did it do it? And did AI outperform the doctors as in the previous study you looked at? Yeah, it, this is a piece of work that I'm really excited about. And, and you're exactly right, that when a patient has chest pain, it's really hard to know what's going on. And I think one thing that might be surprising to people who haven't um, worked in an ER is that it's also very confusing to the doctor. Um, and so one of the biggest dilemmas that you have as a doctor working in the ER or, or a clinic is that a patient can come in with a very subtle symptom, a bit of chest pain, even some nausea. And all of those things are unfortunately potentially consistent with having a heart attack. It doesn't always look like it does on TV where someone clutches their chest and they keel over. It's most often very subtle. And so it's a big dilemma for doctors working in the ER. Now, we have tests for heart attack, but those tests are invasive and costly and expose patients to a bunch of risks of complications. So you can't do them on everyone. Um, and so this is, again, a place where you, you, you think algorithms can help. Um, so what we found was, was two things. The, the first is probably not surprising to, to many people, which is that we train an algorithm to predict someone's likelihood of having a heart attack when they show up to the ER. 
And we find that, you know, there are a bunch of people that the algorithm thinks are very low risk. The algorithm says, you know, this person's never going to test positive. Don't test this person. When the doctor tests them anyway, um, they're negative. But doctors do a lot of those tests. So there's a lot of over-testing in our medical system. And I think that's, you know, that's something we already knew. The second thing we found was, was maybe more surprising, which is that there are also a bunch of people that the algorithm thinks are pretty high risk and the doctor doesn't test them. And those people go on to, in the few weeks um, after that visit, show a lot of the signs that look like missed heart attack. Um, so they go into arrhythmias, they drop dead, they have uh, urgent procedures to treat heart attacks that might have been missed. So it looks like on both of those um, types of patients, the algorithm is doing better than the doctor. And we were able to actually trace that out to um, to some of the characteristics of the algorithm and some of the characteristics of the doctor. So by comparing the algorithm to the doctor, we can see that actually the doctor is testing people according to a pretty simple model of risk. So we, we see who the doctor is testing. So we can kind of get in the doctor's head and look at the kinds of patients that doctors test. Those are people that look that you know, look like they're risky, but on a handful of variables, like maybe 20 or 30 variables that the doctor is using. To, to figure out whom to test. The algorithm can use thousands and thousands of variables, and that's why the algorithm is so much better than the doctor. It's because it can, it's not limited by how many variables we can hold in our head or process or weight properly. The algorithm can hold lots and lots of data in its head and output a really good estimate of someone's likelihood of heart attack, and that's why the algorithm does better. Now, all of that looks really good in the you know, in, in the paper, um, when we were looking back at data and trying to simulate, okay, what would this look like in real life? Um, but a really important part of what we're doing next is we're actually turning that algorithm into a randomized trial that we're deploying in a big health system in the U.S. And we're just going to randomize hospital by hospital um, who gets access to the algorithm and who doesn't. And I think that's really important because especially when you're dealing with these very high stakes decisions, you know, lots of things look good on paper and then fail to translate into the real world. And so in, in the healthcare system, we do have these standards for adopting new technology. And a lot of the time that involves running a randomized controlled trial. Um, when a pharmaceutical company has a new drug, we don't just take their word that the drug looks good in their lab. We make them do the trial and show that it actually improves health outcomes for patients. Um, and I think that especially when artificial intelligence is being used for these very high stakes decisions, we need to hold it to the same kind of standards of evidence. Absolutely. No question about that. And encouraging to hear that you've had some promising results in this field. When uh, we read the less encouraging article recently in Wired, uh, which really does a nice job of laying out some of the concerns, the article entitled, When It Comes to Healthcare, AI Has a Long Way to Go, something we knew. And, and it also points out that while you are clearly an optimist, you're also a realist. And you have a very provocative quote, a researcher can do and say whatever they want in health data because no one can ever check their results. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Uh, how did you come to this conclusion and what can we do about it? So I think there's a huge problem that for all the promise um, surrounding AI and healthcare, we haven't yet solved. And that problem is data. So right now, um, who gets to touch healthcare data and use it to build algorithms? Well, it's largely um, one of two groups of people. The first group is people who are actually um, 
uh, working within a particular health system that produces the data. That's generally a small group of people. And if you think about the fragmentation of data, you know, even if you're at a Stanford or Harvard or, or a really great place, um, you're competing for talent in AI with Facebook and Apple and Amazon and all of these companies, and you're just not going to win that fight. So, so there's not the, the kind of, um, there, there's a huge competition for talent. And, you know, there's just not that many people who are actually living within a particular health system that has access to data. And those data, you know, like they're locked inside that healthcare system. It's very hard to get the data out or get other researchers in. The other type of person who has access to data are people who are actually working at those big tech companies who can just buy access to data. But of course, they're buying access to data so that they can build their own products, um, not so that they can let other people um, build products on the data that they've bought. So either way, we've got this problem that there are lots of people who would love to work on important health problems and building algorithms to, to make people's health better, but they just can't touch the data. And the only people who can touch the data are in these kind of these siloed places where nobody else can touch the data. And so it's a bad setup for, you know, all of the, 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 the things that we want science to do, which is to be open and collaborative and, and even competitive and to have people um, able to check and reproduce other researchers' results. That's how science moves forward in lots of other fields, but it's not how science is moving forward. Um, in, in healthcare, um, and especially when it comes to AI, because of that data problem. Um, and so with one of my, um, my co-authors, Sundal Malanathan, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, um, we founded a nonprofit called Nightingale Open Science. Um, and thanks to philanthropic funding, um, and especially from uh, Eric Schmidt's foundation that, that really went out on a limb um, before we had any health system signed up to, to work with us, um, we got funding to essentially build up data sets with health systems that shared our vision for a, an open um, future for healthcare research in AI. So we built up these data sets around really important medical problems, problems like heart attack, like cancer metastasis, um, like uh, sudden cardiac death. And then we de-identify those data so that they can be ethically and securely taken out of the healthcare system and put up onto our cloud environment where researchers can access them at no cost um, to do their nonprofit research. Um, and so I think it's a really important part of um, building for that future that everyone acknowledges is a huge part of medicine. But right now, um, we don't have the data infrastructure to, to build collaboratively together. Thank you. And, uh, you know, data is, so, as you say, so important. So I, my question is next going to be about COVID-19. And we're in our third year of this pandemic. We're about to start it. And... Um, you know, any of us who have traveled in Europe know that Europe's been sharing their health data and so you get a nice little card and you can move around. But you go from the US and you give them their, your paper card and they laugh at you and you have to go and get a test. So you've commented on and engaged in research about how AI could help address issues related to COVID. Can you share with our listeners some of your observations and what can we learn from the AI systems that you've seen in use during the pandemic to date? So I think that I probably don't need to convince anyone that we've fallen far short of the potential 
of these tools to, to help. And I think we see that everywhere from, you know, failures of forecasting how bad the pandemic was going to be in certain places, leading to huge shortfalls in hospital capacity and, and uh, protective equipment and, you know, all of the things that we would have wanted to allocate properly. Um, but I also think that there are some emerging success stories. And I wanted to highlight one study that was done by um, by some colleagues um, at the University of Pennsylvania and USC um, that worked with the Greek government to deploy an artificial intelligence system for testing incoming travelers at the border. So this was the first summer um, after the, the pandemic had started. And in Greece, I think 25% of their GDP or so is tourism. And so the decision was made that they just could not afford to shut down Greece over the, the summer. Um, and, and so they, you know, there was a, just a political decision to keep the borders open. But there was also a political commitment to doing that in as safe a way as possible. And so what the Greek government did is they worked with these researchers to build up a system that looked at the data on incoming passengers at um, land borders, sea borders, and, and at airports, and targeted testing of incoming travelers to people who were at the highest risk. Um, and that dramatically improved the efficiency of testing. It detected a lot more infections um, with a very limited testing supply because early in the pandemic, we just didn't have enough tests to go around. So we couldn't test everybody. Um, and to some extent, we still can't test everyone as much as we'd like to. So targeting those tests to people um, who need those tests, I think, was a really, really important thing. Um, and that paper, which was published in Nature um, a few months ago, um, just documented the huge benefits of using AI um, in, in this way um, to get the most out of the limited testing resources we have and to keep the borders open um, for, for this really critical period for the economy and for, for ordinary Greek people who work in tourism um, while minimizing the number of infections um, that, that, that the border um, agents let in. So I thought that was a really compelling story that, that illustrated a lot of the upside when um, forward-looking governments work together with, um, with researchers um, to build up these kinds of systems that, that can, you know, get the most out of the existing resources we have. So we could go on and on asking you to talk through each of the studies that you've engaged in and, and observed and commented on publicly. Um, I, and I want to. I wish we had time to do that today because they're so interesting, informative. Um, but also what's so interesting about your academic work is that it has so much impact. Uh, both from uh, the industry point of view, where you certainly gave everyone a wake-up call uh, in industry that they needed to be mindful of the uh, discrimination that could result from their use of AI, whether it was in the, the 2019 study we talked about with racism and classism, uh, as well as many of the other studies. And what's interesting to see is some of the other byproducts, solutions that have resulted from your work. For instance, as a result of, of that study again, uh, we saw that Senators Booker and Wyden were prompted to initiate audits of major healthcare organizations. I'm curious to hear what other solutions have you seen uh, that have evolved thanks to the problems you've identified and the solutions you've suggested? So one of the things we've tried to do, uh, so the, the study that you mentioned, which looked at these population health management tools, um, essentially documented this problem uh, with those tools, um, which was that we wanted to figure out, um, we wanted to use these algorithms to identify people who were going to get sick. But the way we designed those algorithms was to find people who were going to cost the healthcare system a lot of money. And that 
difference between who costs the healthcare system money and who needs help and should cost the healthcare system money but might not due to barriers to access, due to um, racism and discrimination. I think that distinction was not necessarily appreciated before we did that work. And since that work, we've seen that same problem, not just in lots of other places in health, but in lots of other places in other sectors too. So, you know, in criminal justice, there's a lot of interest, of course, in applying algorithms to help with judicial decision-making. In a lot of those cases, you'd like an algorithm that predicts someone's innate propensity to commit a crime. But we don't have those data. We have variables like arrests or convictions, and we all know how much bias can go into um, those kinds of data. In finance, we'd like to know someone's creditworthiness, but we often just have their income, um, which can lead to huge gender and racial disparities. So I think across all different sectors where um, algorithms are being applied to these really important decisions, we face these similar problems about trying to understand, okay, what should this algorithm be doing? And what is it actually doing? And it reminds me of, you know, there's a there's a famous definition of debugging code, which is figuring out what you told the computer to do um, versus what you thought you told the computer to do. And I think that distinction is really applicable here. So what we tried to do is to build up, um, you know, some kind of um, protocol for going through that assessment in a structured way. Um, And we did that with a number of um, tech companies, with um, health insurers and health systems, um, with government agencies. Um, I'm doing it also in the setting of a few different um, uh, investigations um, at at the state level, with state law enforcement in the U.S. um, that are investigations into algorithmic bias. And in all of those things, you know, we, we took this very structured approach to trying to understand what should the algorithm be doing And what is it actually doing? And we put that all together in what we call the Algorithmic Bias Playbook, uh, which is a document that um, uh, maybe we can post a link uh, along with the the podcast, but it's just you can download it online. And the audience is really people who are practitioners, data scientists in industry um, who are working in the space who don't want to be building or purchasing or applying biased products. Um, And so that, that tries to distill um, the lessons that we've learned from all of these collaborations into a really um, simple to follow set of steps that real organizations can do to make sure that they're not um, propagating racial bias via the algorithms that they're using. Thank you. Thank you for doing that work. Um, and uh, raising that awareness, last week we actually had the pleasure of having Renee Cummings on And she obviously talked about the bias that we see in the criminal justice system. And and as you say, it's everywhere. So policymaking, Um, we like to ask questions of our guests about what suggestions that they have for policymakers. Um, What would you suggest that they could do to support your work, be it on algorithmic bias or any other part of responsible AI? Because, you know, you've got so many multiple perspectives to bring to the table. So some suggestions, please. So I've thought about this a lot for my work on bias. And I think that what um, I've tried to do in the work um, that that I have going on with policymakers is two things. The first is that in um, lots of different areas, companies and and academics and, and government agencies they don't want to be promoting bias, but in some ways they don't have the guidelines from regulators about what bias is and how they can avoid it. So I think what 
a lot of policymakers should do and what I've been trying to help um, a number of, of people in, in federal agencies and at the state level to do is to just articulate how they define bias with respect to existing um, civil rights law, consumer protection law, or other parts of the law that, that I think can easily be repurposed to apply to algorithms. And I think that kind of guidance is really important because this is a fast-moving industry. It's really hard for regulators to keep up with individual um, cases. And so providing that prospective guidance to industry um, and to others in this space is really, really important. The second part, though, is that there does need to be some enforcement mechanisms, too. And as I mentioned, I'm also participating in some investigations um, from, from law enforcement into particular cases of biased algorithms. Um, and so I think that that, um, in addition to the carrot, uh, the, the stick mechanism turns out to be quite important. Um, and so I think that you know, th those are two things that at least on the algorithmic bias front, defining bias and enforcing existing laws with respect to algorithmic bias um, are, are both really, really important. I think on the, on the broader front of how do we build an equitable and high-performing healthcare system um, that incorporates the best uses of AI, I think the importance of open data cannot be understated. So this is why we built the nonprofit I mentioned, Nightingale Open Science. But I think that there's a lot that policymakers can do um, also in two ways to, to help build for that future. Um, the first is that we actually have in the US and, and, and also in Europe great frameworks that outline exactly what can be done with data and what cannot be done with data. And I think that within particular health systems and, and, and insurers that I've worked with, a lot of the time there's this insane level of risk aversion that goes way, way beyond um, the things that the law actually says you can't do. And so I think it's really important for regulators to articulate that you know we have set the rules of the road and they are the rules of the road. And we do not want people um, going above and beyond those rules of the road because, you know, those things are going to hamper um, research and, and development of new insights into human health and healthcare delivery um, that I think are not happening today um, because there is a, an overly um, conservative interpretation around, um, around these laws in, in a lot of different places. Um, the second thing is that there are lots of mandates for um, data sharing that are present for example, at NIH, if you get a grant from NIH, which is one of the biggest funders of biomedical research in the world, you are required to share your data, but that is never enforced. Um, and so I think it would be really, really important to have, you know, um, to, to start building um, some accountability mechanisms for researchers that have benefited from taxpayer funding to build up data sets, but are essentially treating those data sets as their private property rather than as um, public goods that, that they should be treated as. And so moving towards that kind of culture um, and again, incentivizing it, but also um, enforcing the existing uh, rules, I think is also really important. What great ideas. I um, hope some of those listening will put those into action. And I hope that the three of us can continue to collaborate to help to realize some of those very thoughtful uh, and targeted suggestions as to how we can make the space better for everybody. Um, speaking of making the space better for everybody, you referenced this really important resource that you helped publish, the Algorithmic Bias Playbook. And I wanted to talk about it a little more so that our audience can understand what it is. We will definitely post a, a link to it. Um, you started off with the compelling question of, is your organization using biased algorithms? I think on, a, on this uh, discussion, we'd all say the answer is probably yes, if not definitely yes. Um, and what are they gonna do about it? And you offer four steps to help answer. What do you do next once you've identified this problem? 
Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what inspired you to create this playbook? You mentioned it a little bit, um, but if you could also provide more color on what you would like to see happen with the existence of this playbook in the world. So I think that if you step back and look at the way that algorithms are being deployed in health, but also in lots of other sectors, um, as I mentioned, there's no strategic oversight of that process. And in fact, the, the development and deployment of algorithms is often pushed down to various um, lower levels of the organization um, and, and, and kind of not taken together um, and, and certainly not um, overseen with any kind of holistic approach to figuring out, okay, how do we use algorithms to the benefit of the patients or the customers that we're interacting with, and how do we minimize the harms? And so I think that, you know, um, as we worked, so after we, we got a lot of publicity from that uh, initial article um, that, that we published showing that there was bias in this family of algorithms affecting uh, tens of millions of people. And so we got a lot of inbounds from um, different organizations that wanted to work with us to understand whether the algorithms they were using and developing were biased. So in the course of that work, we identified these four things that um, we were consistently recommending these organizations do and that they were actually able to do um, given the existing constraints in terms of, you know, um, human resources, time, bandwidth, you know, all of the things that, you know, real organizations do need to think about. Um, and, and so these are steps that are, you know, in a lot of my work, I am a sort of abstract, uh, disorganized academic. But in this part of my work, I'm very focused on real things that real organizations can do um, to, to, to make their use of algorithms better and more just. And so these are things that real organizations um, not only can do, but have done um, in working with us. And one is to establish an accountability structure. There needs to be someone in the C-suite who is actually in their job description responsible um, for the strategic oversight of algorithms, including but not limited to um, uh, catching and preventing racial bias. Um, but since racial bias is you know, often in, in our work, the symptom of a deeper problem with the algorithm in the sense that it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, this is something that even if there were a cynical uh, C-suite executive that didn't care about racial bias, this is still something you would want to do because racial bias is, you know, it's the symptom of a deeper problem with an algorithm in almost all the cases that we've looked, which is that the algorithm is not fit for the purpose that it was designed for. So that accountability structure, I think, is really, really important. Um, and thanks to that accountability structure, if that person in the C-suite is being advised by a diverse group of stakeholders that feels empowered to raise problems um, at, at any level of the organization or, or in the community um, that, that, um, that, that they happen to sit in, I think that that provides a way to catch problems with algorithms before they start affecting tens of millions of people. Um, the second thing that's really important is to inventory the algorithms that are being used. As I mentioned, algorithms are currently um, spread throughout organizations in a very decentralized way, and there's no central repository where someone can actually look and see, okay, well, what are the tools that are currently affecting our customers or patients at very large scale? And I think that bringing all of that together in one place is an important part of that accountability structure. Once you have them all in one place, then you can actually audit them. And there's a very simple process that we recommend for auditing them, which starts with understanding, okay, well, what is this algorithm supposed to be doing? Um, and that's a kind of semantic process that a human has to undertake. There's no automated um, toolkit or, or 
bit of code that you can run over these algorithms that'll tell you what it's supposed to be doing. Purpose is something that um, only a human can figure out because we are the ones who are building and applying these algorithms for a particular goal. And so articulating that goal is the first step to holding those algorithms accountable, not just for doing what they're supposed to be doing, but for doing it equitably across all of these different groups that we that we care about. So that's the foundation of our approach. Um, accountability, you know, having an inventory and then auditing and, and, and fixing biased algorithms um, that we've seen work um, in all of the organizations that we've collaborated with. Thank you. Thank you for telling us about that. And it's interesting how, whether you're working in healthcare or any other sector, it, it comes down to the same things that companies need to do. And we still have that gap between what they're doing and educating them into doing what they should be doing. So, um, yeah, thank you for the playbook. What comes next um, in the development of responsible AI in the healthcare industry? And should it be you keep having to do this? Um, or actually, should it be government, nonprofits, healthcare professionals, and business leaders? I don't know. Yeah, well, I think that um, you, you've teed me up to say exactly what I was going to say, which is that I think this really highlights uh, the, the importance of the kinds of work that you are doing. So, you know, Miriam, it's been such a, a privilege and, and an honor to partner with you on, on some of these things that, that I know you're trying to get out through industry, because exactly as you said, Kay, it cannot just be... Um, you know, one academic group um, that's trying to scale this up. Um, so we've been looking for partners in um, nonprofit consultancies and other academic groups um, and in organizations like yours um, that can help us you know, take some of the principles underlying this work and make that into um, routine business as usual in lots and lots of different organizations because, you know, there, there's there's only one way to scale and that's to convince a lot of people um, to do this thing. So the thing has to be simple enough that it can be done, but, you know, um, but, but intrinsically this has to be bigger than any one person or group um, or effort. It has to just be incorporated into the, um, the routine operations of businesses and parts of government and academia and nonprofits across the world. And I think that really makes the case for the, the really critical work um, that you are doing um, to try to sign um, organizations and people up uh, to, to pledge to do these things. Well, Thank you for the kind words. And we certainly could not agree more that it's going to take a lot of us, uh, all hands on deck to understand this issue, whether you're the industry leader who needs to look within your own organization and understand what you're creating, what you're producing with your AI, the policymakers who will be setting up the guardrails, uh, and the nonprofits out there. You know, Equal AI uh, is so fortunate to partner with Kay and the World Economic Forum on these issues that are so pivotal. Uh, and, and Ziad, your work has been essential to all of what we do, and, and collaborating with you has been a distinct honor. Um, and thinking of the different organizations that play a role here, you mentioned Nightingale, uh, the nonprofit you created. I wonder if you could share a little bit about the goal of Nightingale, as well as Dandelion, the company you used, that you created, you founded uh, to create a platform for AI innovation and health. What did you hope to accomplish with those and what would success look like for those organizations? I think going back to the observation that health data are currently very siloed inside of organizations that, um, that, that don't want to or can't share. 
I think it's just a huge problem because, you know, we're, we're all very attuned and, and appropriately attuned to the risks of um, sharing too much data and compromising patient privacy. And I think that's a red line that, you know, we, we cannot cross um, because ultimately if we want to be using the data um, to improve patients' health and their lives, we can't at the same time be compromising um, their, their health information and, and their privacy. So I think we're all very, very attuned to those risks. And, and the good news is that there are lots of technological solutions for that, whether that's um, advances in cloud computing security and, and storage um, or, or de-identification methods and, and encryption methods. So I think, you know, it's not that those problems are solved, but I think we're very attuned to them and we have an increasingly broad range of solutions um, to deal with them. The problem that we haven't really grappled with is the you know um, the the huge value that is locked in those data for humanity for for the world for, for patients that's not being realized um, because of those barriers to accessing data and so a lot of the work that I do is basically just trying to find secure and ethical and principled ways um, to give more people access to those data. Um, and so Nightingale is, is, is a big part of that, and I think that's very focused on the research community because I think that's um, a big part of where our productivity comes from. Um, it's from writing papers and from publishing and from, you know, like all of the things that, that is most of my, my day job, and I think that's really, really important. Um, at the same time, it's not necessarily the most sustainable model for doing that. Um, and so I think that, you know, that as, as I thought more um, with some of my collaborators about ways that we could build a sustainable infrastructure for um, doing more with the data that we have, I think it, it's hard to do that without thinking a little bit more about how to do that through the private sector. Um, and so Dandelion is a company um, that, that I co-founded with, um, with a number of other people that essentially establishes um, an environment where health systems can securely share parts of their data and expose parts of the data um, to companies that have interesting ideas for building tools that can benefit patients. Um, so, you know, you can imagine based on all the rest of my work, we have a lot of very clear ethical principles on what we do and what we don't do. And our North Star for this is just, you know, is this something that will benefit the patients whose data we are using to build the tool. I think that's an important just, you know, ground rule for, for everything that we do. It has to benefit patients. It can't just be optimizing billing for healthcare systems to extract more money from insurers. It has to be about patients. And it has to be designed with ethical principles that um, are carefully attuned to biases and, and inequalities of data and the tools. But that said, there are a ton of really, really important uses um, for, for the data turned into algorithms that I think could create products that can scale um, and, and really transform um, patient care over the next 20 to 30 years. Um, and so Dandelion is a platform for doing that data sharing and giving um, uh, companies access to data to produce products that could eventually benefit patients. And that, that's really wonderful to, to hear about. And of course, you're talking about privacy and although we are now at the last question, so I can't ask you this question, I am going to sneakily ask you the question about whether we actually do care about our healthcare privacy as much anymore, because everybody's giving something about their health away, whether it's the amount of ex that we exercise or whether it's what we eat. So there are so many different applications now that, that take some of our healthcare data. So... My sneaky question is, do you think that healthcare privacy is as valued as it used to be? And then my final question is, 
if you had a magic wand to achieve one thing in responsible AI, or AI, because it always has to be built responsibly, what would that be? So on, on the, the privacy question, I think that a big problem with all of the current approaches to um, privacy of health data is that exactly as you said, there are lots of people taking our data and doing stuff with it, like selling it and you know whatever they're doing with it. But we're not getting anything back. And I think that that's the problem with privacy is that, you know, as we all know, we're all very willing to give up privacy um, to uh, companies, to other people, to, to lots of different settings if we're getting something back. I don't mind that um, Google knows where I am when I'm using Google Maps because I can use Google Maps and that's great. So I think that, you know, privacy is a trade-off. And right now that trade-off is very, very asymmetric and it's not in patients' favor um, because I think that their data are just being sold and, and lots of stuff is being done with it and it's not benefiting them. Um, and so, you know, one of the principles that I uh, think about is that this is the, one of the principles that underlies a lot of the institutional uh, review board um, review of, of research that's being done um, with, with health data and other data, but it's the, the principle of beneficence, which is that, you know, if we're doing something, it has to do more, more good than harm. Um, and so I think that's, you know, a great guiding principle for, for the use of data um, is that it has to actually um, not just be beneficent, it has to do more good than harm, but it has to respect people's um, privacy and, and try to minimize risks to it, and it has to be just. And so those are the three principles, that the Belmont principles that underlie a lot of the research that, that we do um, in academia, and I think those are great principles for research as well. One of those principles, beneficence, acknowledges the fact that it's a trade-off and that you, know, you can never get risk to zero, but you can get it pretty close and you can really um, realize a ton of benefits um, for that very small risk. So I think that's that's how I um, at least think about it in my work. Um, I think the magic wand question, I would probably have to go with open data. I think that open data um, is, is the way to solve a ton of the problems that are affecting um, uh, open AI. The, the reason we were able to audit the algorithm that, um, that was being used for population health and that was scaling up racial bias was because we had access to data. It wasn't the company that built the algorithm. It wasn't any way, like, so being able to maximize the, the surface area of contact between researchers and data I think is going to lead to a lot of accountability, a lot of catching of problems that we can't even imagine today. Just as you know, before we wrote our study, nobody knew that there were all these problems with algorithms that were being used for millions and millions of people. So I think opening up data in a secure and ethical way, um, using some of the methods that I mentioned, but, but I'm sure there are many other and better ways to do it, um, I, I think is going to be the single um, most high impact thing we can do um, for, for this field. Well, uh, speaking of high impact, Ziad, we are so grateful for all the work that you're doing. And thank you for taking the time today with sh to share it with us and our listeners. I know I learned a great deal and I will look forward to further digesting some of the insights you shared with us today. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk with both of you and I look forward to continuing our work together as well. Thank you. Well, Kay, another fascinating conversation I loved hearing Ziad's insights that really spanned the entire spectrum, policy, healthcare, algorithms. What were some of the big takeaways for you? Well, likewise, I really enjoyed um, speaking to him, but you know, that's true of every podcast we do together. <laughs> yes. We're 
so privileged to have so many amazing people agree to come on this podcast. The things that I took away, I think the playbook and trying to, it's something we've worked on at the forum, trying to help companies to really think about how they create algorithms and how they audit them and how they make sure that they continue to be useful. So uh, delighted to hear about a playbook around healthcare and algorithms and also delighted to hear about where he's going next with his work. I thought also it was, it was really useful to hear about his suggestions for policymakers um, so, uh, and the you know, giving, having policymakers actually give guidelines on the basis of current law, because we always talk about what new law could be created, but there are so many current laws that could be used. And then, of course, um, his point about enforcement. No point in having laws if you never enforce them. What did you find interesting? Well, not surprisingly, given how alike we think, those were some of the big takeaways for me as well. I think that um, his optimism is very encouraging. He is a practitioner. He is building these algorithms. He is studying where they go wrong, and yet he remains optimistic. So I'm encouraged by that. I really loved his policy suggestion of looking at both the carrots and the sticks, like we always talk about. Um, but again, like you said, the law is on the books. There are already mandates that those who are building off data sets and getting these government grants share the data, share their findings in a more open way. Um, and I think that it's a really important point that there are ways to activate uh, companies, researchers, those who are benefiting from government investment uh, in a way that will benefit the public. And so I think uh, there's a lot more to dig into in, in those suggestions, um, as well as his hope that we have more access to data. I think that it's, you know, it, it's not um, the sexiest topic, data, but it just boils down to the most important thing here. If we are building algorithms that are trained on data and that will continue to iterate based on data, we just can't talk enough about the importance of having data sets that lead us to the solutions that we're hoping for um, that are better than our um, past decisions that have human biases. And so I'm really grateful for his insights into what he studied and what he's actually doing to help realize these outcomes. Absolutely. And, and you're right about data. Um, you know, we, we know that we need good data and we need to be able to share this data um, and we also need to think about diversity with programming as, oh, creating the algorithms as well. And so it's diversity and, and it's both with the data, having the right data for the right populations, and also making sure that the people creating those algorithms are creating algorithms for everyone. Well said and a perfect place to end this discussion, although I hate to do so. Thank you, Kay, for another great conversation. And I'm already looking forward to our next one. Thank you. Take care. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. 
To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 